you can. Can I tune in? Yes, you can. Can I tune in? Yes, you can. Can I tune in? Yes, you can. East Leeds Community Radio. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another exciting edition of Love the Words. This is the fourth or possibly fifth, technically, which comes to you courtesy of Pennine Platform magazine. And we have four contributors to the current issue, which is issue 94, came out in November 2023, here in the studio to talk about the poems that they and others have written and bring the magazine to life with some of their uh, insights and uh, further thoughts. So um, I'm going to ask uh, Jenny Hockey to read the poem that she has contributed, which we all agreed in the pre-studio talk was very amusing and uh, that she will uh, then shed some additional light on how she came to write it. Jenny, over to you. Thank you. And just before I read the poem, to say that I refer to an IFU, which means um, Information for Use. On activating your instrument for the first time, please familiarise yourself with both this user guide and the IFU before using your instrument. Your own voice might sound echoey or strange. Your brain will adjust. If your hair has retained capacity, expect to hear it moving about. If wildlife in your area has survived environmental degradation, expect to find birdsong a bit much. If you are in the company of younger people, insert your instrument furtively. If you practice a faith, you may hear inspirational words when angels are ministering in your area. Remain alert to the sound of God breathing. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist if its volume increases. You may find the sensation of a plastic plug in your ear canal unpleasant. We can only apologise for this. There may be times when it's helpful to tear out your instrument and throw it in a pond. The risk of choking a duck varies with age, but you will feel a lot better. When meeting someone you never really liked, you may find it helpful to remove your instrument, even if you actually like them a little bit. If for any reason you have lost sensation or flexibility in your fingers, for example through keyboard overuse or washing up, You may have difficulty manipulating the cleaning tool and replacing the batteries. Both are extremely small. You may experience this as the last straw. You may still struggle to hear, even while listening with your instrument in place, especially if you are in lots of background noise or a large group. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist about this and consider more solitary pursuits. (laughs) Very good, very good. <laughs> Tell us, Jenny, how you came to write that. Have you used hearing aids? Uh, yes, I wrote it shortly after um, being uh, given some hearing aids for the first time um, and I was moving from just using them very occasionally in a big uh, group setting to thinking maybe I should wear them all the time. Um, but all these hurdles were there in my way. Um, and I drafted it in a, 
um, a poetry business workshop with the Sheffield poet Genevieve Carver. Um, who and it was a workshop about the absurd, which attracted me. Um, and yeah, it just felt like an opportunity for humour. Um, and she told us quite a lot about using the absurd, as she does. And there was a poem by Caroline Bird called Patient Intake Questionnaire, uh, where she'd rewritten um, a questionnaire that was issued to people um, about to enter a mental hospital. Um, with questions like, do you taste pepper while eating ice cream and, and sort of crazy questions. And that inspired me. So I went back to the, the IFU. Um, and in fact, some parts of the original do appear in the poem. But, um, you know, I really enjoyed rewriting it. For those who don't have a copy of the magazine, it's worth mentioning that it is laid out like an instruction leaflet. Uh, so it stands out from some of the other poems because the uh, the layout actually adds to it. But to hear you reading it aloud, of course, added uh, yet another dimension. And there are a number of poems in this issue where the layout is important and uh, we're going to be considering together if we get time why uh, print is and can still be important to poems even in the digital age. But um, I'd like to move on uh, so that each poet reads their poem and one other all being well to the poem on the other side of the spread uh, in the magazine, which is page 28, which is by David Harmer and is also uh, very amusing and pertinent to so many writers. Okay. This is called Vanity. Much easier to stockpile than to dump these slim volumes stacked cheek by jowl in sealed cartons, 94 in each, crisp as the day the printer delivered them. Carl at Household Recycling needs to know just what he's dealing with. We explain how an idea from decades ago has now turned sour, so we're slinging our junk before the kids have to face it. He hooks out a copy, rolls the word poems round his tongue like rare whiskey, swallows, smiles, use number seven. We heave them over the edge of the skip, watch as they split apart with a thud, disgorging their printed guts, all that ink and stale verses, piled into heaps and canyons of dreck. We notice the keep two metres apart signs, Still stuck on the ramp. How things used to be. Carl grunts. What a bloody con all that was. Returns to polishing a two-handled trophy salvaged from number four scrap metal. It says, under eight's football cup, 1990. But he knows it's for him. Donny's best kept tip. He asks, how many more of them boxes you got? Dozens, I tell him. His shoulders are shaking. <laughs> I love the way you use dialogue in that and Cole becomes a very real character, as does Donnie's best-kept tip. And I like the way the poem opens up to a wider dimension. It isn't simply some poet feeling sorry for themselves about having to dump all his uh, unsold books, mm. but, um, you know, it puts it in the wider context. Well, Do tell me more. Well, when you go to a dump, as I'm sure everybody knows, you enter into this kind of negotiation with the guys who run the dump and they're really experts at running a dump 
they're not always explosives, but they know about how to run a dump. And so when you turn up with boxes that have got 94 of the same book, the first thing they say is, what's in the boxes, pal? And you say, books, mate. And he says, oh, we've got a big yellow thing over there to put books in. And you say, no, these are all, <laughs> these are all the same book. It's just there's boxes of them. <laughs> and he looks at you like, really? And then these two worlds collide because he hooked one out. He really did. And he said, I don't know if his name was Carl, I can't remember. And he said, oh, the poems are there. You know. And I thought, yeah. <laughs> and when you live in the poetry bubble, like we perhaps do a bit, everybody goes, oh, yeah, sure, you write poems. But when you meet some bloke who's not right bothered about poems, he says, oh, fair enough. Are you chucking them all away? <laughs> yeah. And then he says, how many more you got, mate? And he says, I've got dozens of these things. Yeah. And I'm getting rid of them because they're embarrassing. I think it's uh, brave to come clean <laughs> about what often happens to the best-laid plans of poets. Well, well self-publishing is a great thing. I've done it. We've all done some self-publishing, but when it nobody buys it, it's and then you know it's been kicking around and. and it's pretty hard to judge, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. if you walk around the Hay on Y bookshop, you see the place stacked to the rafters with people's life's work. Yeah, I know. And it's sad. I know. But I know. it meant everything to them yeah. at the time. However, I should just say that you, David, have actually written about 15 books yeah. um, and um, they have um, definitely had their moments of popularity oh, and, so um, like, yeah. and given lots of children yeah. uh, a great introduction to poetry. David actually is a, is a writing for children guru, <laughs> having been a primary school teacher for... Uh, quite a long time yes. so um, yeah. you know it, it, that isn't probably typical of <clears throat> what happens to your work guru but um, <laughs> yeah well um, and you are in good company as Absolutely. we all are um, with uh, another poet called Bob Dylan from yeah. whom it might be good to hear I threw it all away held her in my arms She said she would always stay But I was cruel I treated her like a fool I threw it all away Once I hit mountains in the palm of my hand The rivers that ran through Every day That must have been me I never knew what I had Until I threw it all away Love is all there is It makes the world go round Love and only love, it can't be denied No matter what you think about it You just won't be able to do without it Take a tip from one who's tried Chapel FM, where we are with eight no, uh, five pairs of legs tucked under the studio table does a lot of work with writers, but they may not all know, you may not all know, that uh, Pennine Platform is 
even longer established than Chapel FM, uh, started in 1973, a magazine for poets in the uh, north of England, primarily, and it rapidly expanded and has published poems from all over the world and been in continuous publication in one way or another. It's had five or six editors since 1973. So um, it's uh, an honour for me, the editor, Julia, to be um, in the hot seat for as long as I can bear it. <laughs> And um, certainly to uh, do little um, events like this, which add an extra dimension. And you're always welcome to um, to get in touch on the website, penineplatform.co.uk, and find out a bit more about us. But here live, we have now um, Cora Greenhill, who is going to read us one of the two poems in this issue that she has kindly contributed. And um, I don't think she knows which one herself yet. <laughs> okay, Julia, I'm going to read on Blackamoor. Blackamoor is an area of boggy woodland, uh, sorry, boggy moorland near where I live in Derbyshire. Um, and the poem came out of how closely it resembles the kind of landscape I grew up in as a child in Northern Ireland. Um, so in a sense, the poem is, is telling a kind of life story through the landscape. On Blackamoor. I walk the wet hem of the woods on Blackamoor, beside the slope of cotton grass, unkempt white hair, frayed ragged by July. I'm forgetting the names of things, those yellow bog flowers, the calls of birds I wasn't even taught. I knew the voices, but not their names, as a child on the winding road to school, letting the bristly flowers of rushes brush my hands, seeded grasses slide between my fingers. I sink onto a stone, Thickly upholstered in spongy moss, comfort that speaks of rest undisturbed for years. I remember that photo I took of you, we called the green man, when your beard was long and red, leaf shadows flickered on your face and the mossy log we'd made our bed. Now my bones long to lie down among rushes, but no seeded grasses will bend to tickle me. Thistles prick me awake to the whispers of the woods, the heft of wind in branches, the stirring birdsong. It isn't time quite yet to let words go, blow like ashes among the grass and nameless by the nameless birds be called. I love the way you end that. It is such a, a beautiful lifting off from the depths of melancholy in a way. That's how I read it. Uh, tell us more. How do you feel about it? Um, there is some melancholy in it, but there's also some nostalgia and I think some pleasure in the memories of childhood and then adulthood 
younger adulthood. Um, and I think there's a recognition that in the end that it's it's this natural landscape that's actually keeping me going, mm. getting me going again. It's like, no, you know, you, you can't just give up. And I feel like reading that now, it actually feels significant in a different way from when I wrote it because it's a great sense at the moment that, oh, God, it's so easy to give up in this terrible mm. world. Mm. And yet, what is it that keeps us going? It's the natural world. That's what we've got to fight for. And, yeah, that idea that um, that poetry is our song in the way that the birds have songs, we have songs, puts us very much on the same level with the birds. It's yes, I like the way it seeds to the natural world, i.e. it gives way at the end uh, and really makes the point that that is more than everything, and yet it is everything to us. It isn't time quite yet to let words go, blow like ashes among the grass, and nameless by the nameless birds be called. I think semantically, syntactically, you've done something rather elegant there in sort of letting the sentence take off towards the end. I think it did take off on its own, yes, I was never quite sure. Anthony? <laughs> yeah, I just, I just wanted to say it's a landscape and it's a soundscape and, not, and the way you've described it, a heartscape as well. OK, um, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, again, we've been talking about um, the, the contents of poems. The other poem that uh, Cora contributed is a very different type of poem, uh, what you might call a, a, a shape poem and you wouldn't necessarily know from uh, hearing it but um, I'd be interested to know how you feel about both these poems being in print. How important is it to you, Cora, to have your poems printed? Uh, Very important. Um, Yeah, how they look on the page um, feels yeah, vital to me, but at the same time, poetry is written to be heard. I think some poetry is more written to be heard than others. Some is, and the poem Tree Creeper, I've actually never heard myself read it, so I don't know how it sounds. <laughs> um, but it is a, a sort of imitation on the page of the of the movement of a tree creeper that goes round and round and up and down the tree. And how mesmerising it is. Yes. Um, I always think it's the mark of a good poem if you find yourself wanting to read it aloud, which I certainly did when you sent me that. And it it would work. I would go for it. I would do it at a reading at your first opportunity (laughs) because it definitely works on different levels. I'd like to move on now, uh, if I may, we'll come back to that debate later, to uh, Anthony and his, again, very different poem, um, which, um, over to you, please, Anthony. Anthony Costello. Thank you, Julia, and thank you for publishing my poems in Pen and Platform, and thank you for inviting me onto the wireless for the first time for me. Um, this is a short poem, and it's called A Double Drowning. Hunting in a wooded vale... A boy is drawn to a field and a pond where, on a bed of reeds, his twin sister Narsi lies. Sticks floating in a trail, the sun-reflected rays, flies busy as rain, 
do not distract his gaze. In his time of grief, voices go unheard, as would-be lovers walk from the trees, seeing in his stare endless vanity. Vanity, that word again. Tell us more about that poem. Um, it started a couple of years ago. It's gone through dozens and dozens of drafts, but it started as a kind of defence of, of Narcissus, if we're thinking about the Narcissus myth. And uh, my first instincts were, well, what's wrong with the boy admiring his own beauty? And what, what is wrong with anybody rejecting the advances of a lover or someone who's lusting after him? And um, the famous example is, um, or the famous version of the myth is by Ovid, um, Echo and Narcissus. And um, basically he rejects Echo's advances, who's got her own curse to live with, um, the kind of truncated speech and the echoing and the chatterbox and can only finish people's sentences and, and repeat what people say. Um, and um, so a curse is put on, on Narcissus by Nemesis, uh, that he should be fixated by his own image in the pool and eventually waste away or be killed. There's different different versions. But I came across um, Pausanias, uh, a Greek geographer, um, in his 12-volume um, Descriptions of Greece, and this wonderful paragraph in, in Pausanias where he suggests that um, Narcissus had a sister. In Pausanias's, um prose, um, Narcissus is just looking at the water, imagining his sister, who's not here anymore. We don't know how she's died. And he's just reflecting, reflecting upon his, his lost sister. So in my poem, I've got um, his sister, Narci. Um, she's actually Narcissus in, in um, Pausanias's prose. I have a kind of um, Ophelia-like in the pond. So yeah, it's, it's pretty simple. It's, uh, Narcissus is actually not admiring his own beauty in this poem. He's grieving over, the, uh, over his sister, who he finds dead in the pond, and we don't know why. Um, so yeah, it's to say... Um, you're pursuing this person for the wrong reasons. If you if you if you're giving him death for his vanity, you're wrong. Yes, and also to say that there are many ways of reading a myth, and this is a possibly a a feminist take on it. That you know, it's not all about men and men. Um, there are women sometimes behind the men and connected to the men, and and uh, one of the many um, newer ways of, uh, of reimagining myths. Definitely. And in, in one of the earlier versions, I think even, even predating Ovid, um, Narcissus as pursuer is, is a male. And, and, and you get the sense that he was admired by both men and women and pursued by men and women, was pretty much stalked, um, spied upon. Um, and this is a 15-year-old boy who mm. might not be aware of his sexuality in the way that adults would be. So, um, yeah, it's just a kind of myths. I was speaking to, to Cora beforehand in the, in, in the cafe, and myths are always up for grabs, aren't they, mm. depending on whatever century we're in. So it's, uh, it's quite fertile ground. So it was nice to work with this material and hopefully maybe give it a slightly different version of this story. Um, that hadn't been done before. I don't know whether that's true, but it felt like it when I was writing it. Oh, yes. I, I, it felt fresh to me. Thank you. Cora? Yeah, just um, so much I could say about I love working with myths and I love the way you've used that. Um, uh, and I, I suppose what one thing that struck me was that this idea of the sister it being in the pond, maybe mm. he's looking at the feminine side of himself, which is mm. actually a bit taboo for teenage boys as well. That's a nice well. idea. 
that just came to me. That's mm. lovely, yeah. yeah. Mm. Yes. Yes, Cora is a, a bit of a classicist, aren't you? Well, You're pre-classicist, one, actually. Well, <laughs> one of your... Uh, your latest book, actually, Artemis, the, the People's Priestess. So Yeah, uh, which has also got sections where Narcissus speaks and he's seduced by Apollo. Um, so it's the same idea of being a young boy being seduced by mm, a male. Yes, yes. It, it, very, very pertinent to uh, current uh, debates. And we could have a long one, but we only have 45 minutes, sadly. Um Maybe is it time for a bit more music? Carly Simon? covered a number of topics already but um, we have other poets who are unable to make it to the studio and wouldn't have fitted in anyway um, it's, a, it's a compact area but we would have loved to have had every contributor from uh, for the magazine here as it is um, Jenny has chosen another poem uh, to read from, uh, uh, from the magazine what have you chosen for us Jenny? I've chosen I've chosen Dog Races River by John Raubenheimer. That's on page 38, I think. Mm-hmm, yes. <clears throat> Dog Races River. Brawn of the river, scarved with white, scares me, this stealthy, rustling weight, tearing along close to the path. Tell this to my dog, my elemental whippet, bounding lout as thistledown, spine a spring. I'm stuck in mud as she thrills ahead, ears trimmed to her skull. Where white water rams into rock, she swerves into trees. Follow me if you can. Nightfall, she rests head and paws on my feet. The river puts its leavening arms around us. Yes, that's by John Raubenheimer, who has contributed another uh, couple of poems on a slightly different theme. But tell us why you chose that one, Jenny. I enjoyed it. Um, I particularly the, the uh, very beautiful ending of the river putting its leavening arms around us. Mm. And I thought it was just very skillful the way that the, the river and the dog and the man are divided from one another. 
and then in, in you know in this very in a, in a relatively short poem uh, very sort of delicately brought together at the end um the language is very fresh i th- i felt you know the brawn of the river and mm. actually thinking about the weight of a river you know mm. that's a really interesting thought mm. um and the sounds you know the dog thrills the ears trimmed to her skull etc and that last line the um he talks about the river puts its leavening arms around us, and I thought, oh, that's lovely. Do you actually know what the word leavening means? And I thought, well, I'm not really quite sure, so I looked it up, and I thought it was beautiful meaning, which was transforms into something better. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, and that, that sort of actually made me think about poetry generally, the, mm. the, the, the capacity of poetry to have this leavening effect. And yes, so. there, there are three characters in the poem here, aren't there? There's the speaker, the dog and the river and they all have their own vitality and then there's the language which uh, has a vitality of its own as well that you mentioned. Mm. Uh, thank you, John, for that contribution. I hope you're listening. Mm. Um, let's move on now, shall we, to a poem that uh, struck David and that uh, he, he's going to read. I think it's by, is it Julia Stovard? Yeah, I think that's how you pronounce it, yeah. This is, this is a poem called The Odds. They turned up in early spring and settled beneath the eaves. They had no wings or snouts and didn't sting or screech. We caught them only by a shadow, a whiff of blight, and yet they made light of wearing us thin, built nests from our reserves and incubated sloth until sickness hung in us like heavy chains. Home became porous with a constant gnawing. The roof leaked, pipes dripped, screws came unaccountably loose, and the fruit of their efforts was fungus loaded with spores. Our lungs sore from coughing, aches in all our joints. Next they worked on wiring faults into all we owned, and the appliances died one by one, except the clocks. The brisk ticking as failure stacked up like hands tugged from beneath the pile and heaped back on top. It's a good one, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, it's, I suppose, what you might call a a haunting of kinds, but you don't know what exactly... But it it taps in, you're talking about myths, is perhaps the right word, but that, that whole notion of that folklore notion of other things, parallel things coming into your life and messing it up for you, and that that terrible... I've always loved stuff... Because one of the reasons I write for children is because I think they live in a parallel universe and they assume that grown-ups know all the answers and then you, you get to be a grown-up and you realise you don't know any answers. But, um, you know, when I was a little boy, this shows how old I am, it was the little grey men and the borrowers and stuff like that. Just this mm-hmm. notion there's something out there that moves in on you. But this is much more malevolent and much more difficult and much more threatening and much more horrible because the, that notion of spores infecting you and you don't know where they've come from you know the house where where we live now was full of we didn't know this when we bought it and it didn't matter it was a bit unsettling we suddenly found it was full of it wasn't full of bats the roof was and we had about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bats and i just thought that's and then they just all disappeared one day they didn't come back um it's just really, that, sorry. The really sort of sinister yeah. side to it as well. I mean, yeah. it could be a horrible virus or something. Yeah, it could just, be, couldn't you're it? You're left just not knowing. Yeah, and yeah. I just thought it was just a marvellously elusive, mm. uh, you kind of 
touch the, your foot on the bottom of the, the, the river and you think, yeah, I know where I am now, and then all of a sudden it takes you somewhere else. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's a marvellous poem. And all, all the time at the back of that poem, I think, is, is a tie-in with the title, the title, the clever title, mm. The Odds. Yeah. And you're thinking, mm. what are the odds? Yeah. And it's, it's a phrase, you know, yeah. what are the odds? Yeah. But it means something <laughs> the, the odds completely are different. And that perhaps as a primary school teacher, you might, might have had your I, can class I, I, I must put drawing this record the straight. odds. I must put this record straight. I haven't been a primary school teacher since oh, 1987. No. When I became a primary school head teacher, which meant, of yeah. course, I did no teaching whatsoever. Oh, right. And then in 2023, I quit that. Right. So, but no, but I've mm. worked with primary school children yes. for years and years yeah. and years and years and mm. years and years and written <clears throat> for them for years. So, mm. yes. I, mm. <laughs> but uh, there's people out there going, no, you're <sighs> not a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we need we need to uh, move on because I'd love to hear uh, another poem read by Cora, which uh, was sent by... Um, Jane Routh, um, take it away, please, Cora. Yes, this is yes, this is a very interesting poem. I think it's uh, struck me as very prosaic in a way, but it's very definitely a poem, and it's called Tree Correspondence NZ, i.e., New Zealand, and it's it's a, it's a letter. Mm. Dear A. Great your protest saved the old Tataras. I thought of you that day, your midwinter likely warmer than our midsummer's day. No idea you'd have, even with a hoist, so many willing to climb and stay put. You asked about the plantings here, ash die back. Young trees you saw in deer guards are now tall and stately beings, their own selves, living lives beyond any plans of mine. They give land back some mystery and depth. Roadside veterans I'd thought I'd have to fell, leafed up, late of course in breaking out from epicorms, but strong enough this season, unless there's reinfection. There's little yet. What few black drooping leaves I found, I burned. I'm often asked advice these days for dieback. Those early years, nothing but a feel of sticks or good grazing gone to waste, forgotten in the face of sixty footers. Wait, I say, though that answers not what's wanted. We're so short-term. Affected trees aren't ugly. They're miraculous. Diseased wood sealed off, fresh growth begun. And even if trees die, standing deadwood houses far more species than than does live. You know all this. Coincidence to find, like you, I'm trying to thwart the sores. And how glad I've been of trees these last hot weeks, walking out early into cool, clean air, easy to breathe and soothing on the skin. Grasses along the wood edge, shoulder high, their spires and feathers and bottle brushes caught in low morning sun before the breeze, as if cast in silver. Uncountable blessings uncountable losses to come yours jay yes that packs a punch doesn't it 
It certainly does. It's an incredible, unexpected ending and mm. absolutely makes the whole poem, to me, resonate in a completely different level. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. But I love the knowledge in the poem mm. as well. I mean, I, I know Jane Routh has extre extreme sort of experience of, of working in the country and mm. knows a tremendous amount, but I love poems like that that actually give you information mm. um, as well as that profound resonance. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Thanks for that lovely reading. Before we move on to the last uh, poem from Anthony, who himself is a, a plantsman and a very knowledgeable gardener, could we perhaps have the music that Cora particularly requested, which is Caitlin Finch and um, Seku Kaitu? just heard a beautiful poem uh, from Jane Routh called Tree Correspondence um, in the voice of um, a forester from New Zealand uh, talking about the um, threats to trees there. But we have um, a, a, an ex expert uh, plantsman and gardener from much closer to home <laughs> about to read uh, his choice of poem, which appropriately enough takes us back to the 18th century. Anthony, take us away with this, please. This poem is by Rod Whitworth, and it's called Capability Brown Lays the Table. Capability Brown lays the table and realises the fundamental problem. 
Each class of item, side plates, forks, etc., is of a uniform size, and his perspective is shot. And the conventional setting, linear ranks along the borders, leaves no scope for organic curves. He cannot see a path leading through to a tailored copy of nature within the time-honoured tradition. But such things do not daunt a revolutionary. The dinner guests will surely be amused by the copses of cutlery planted upright in tumblers and doubtless be impressed by the snail-shell spiral of size-graded plates, saucers, cups and cruettes. But may, alas, grow weary of fishing every course out of the lake in the far corner of the vista. Mm. Well done, Rod. Uh, Tell us more about your liking for that, Anthony. Um, Well, I've always loved um, people who think about the future in 203 years, you know, hence. And um, Capability Brown would have been planting for people born 200 years after he after he mm. designed these gardens mm. and the, the generosity in that and the victorians did it as well with the with the gardens that they made you know as a gardener myself you when you're designing gardens and planting up gardens you're thinking about how the garden's going to look in 20 or 30 years you're thinking about perspective in 20 and 30 years how the plants and the trees and the shrubs are going to relate to each other in 20 or 30 mm. years mm. Um, occasionally you come across a garden that's already been planted up in mm. that way 40 years ago and now it needs attention mm. um, but this particular poem I was really interested in the small to um, to the scopy size of this poem and maybe in some kind of tautologous way it's about how you write poems as well um, so it seemed to me to mirror the writing mm. of a poem in terms of perspective so I think it's a very clever poem mm. um, and it's got um, lots of kind of dimensions to it um, but I was drawn to it because of the gardening, I think. But there are lots of other poems in um, in, this, in the uh, in the book, in the magazine, um, as have just been read out, which have got um, nature and trees, and so yeah, it felt appropriate. Yeah, it's a pleasure to read it. The the the, the shaping element uh, of um, writing poems and managing the white space, I'm sure, has uh, a lot in common with planning a garden. And of course, the poets are doing it for the future. We all hope our poems will be read in 200 years' time. Exactly. Um, But uh, who knows? Capability Brown is one of uh, three 18th century luminaries mentioned in the issue, which also touches on Handel and on Hogarth mm. and um, on, uh, I think there's, there's another poem, where are we now? Porcelain Auguries by, um, by Phil Burton, uh, which uh, also touches on the uh, 18th century sculptor J.J. Candler. So there's a bit of a theme running through, which also overlaps with the uh, uh, theme of trees and what we are doing uh, with and to our uh, environment uh, for future generations so it's beautiful how things can uh, tie in like that and we uh, unearth a kind of zeitgeist really preoccupations that are threading things together but I particularly like that poem because it it unites the uh, the mundane domestic setting mm. the table a simple mm. uh, everyday action um, with um, this uh, revolutionary mind mm. um, which actually transformed the landscape um, for um, future generations. Mm. 
and for the very rich, of course, <laughs> sweeping away whole villages in the process quite often. Yeah. Um, we were going to discuss very briefly, we've only a couple of minutes left, sadly, um, the um, importance of um, uh, getting poems uh, onto the page as opposed to perhaps just on a, on a screen digitally. Mm. Um, so um, how do each of you um, feel about that? Why is it important? I think you've just been saying, really, when you said about 200 years, you know, it's like... Is anything online going to be still being read mm. in 200 years? But things in books could well be. I, mm. I think that's, mm. for me, there's something more permanent about paper, which may be completely disproved by the future, mm. but that's how I feel it to be. I, I like being on paper. That makes it feel real and permanent. It's tangible, isn't it? It reifies things and it not only is for the future, but it links us back. We share precisely the yeah. same experience, uh, the, the, the rustle of pages in our fingers and the fact that we can plonk ourselves down anywhere uh, with a, um, a book in the hand or a paper in the hand mm. and, um, uh, and have essentially the same physical experience and, and um, cerebral experience as uh, our predecessors 200, 400, 600 years mm. ago. So thank you, Mr Caxton. Mm. David? Well, yes, um, there's something lovely about a book. As, as Anthony Powell said, books do furnish a room. And um, I can't imagine a life without a room full of books. I can't imagine living... I mean, I'm 71, so I'm bound to say mm. that, aren't I? You know, I mean, when I was young, we used quills and on vellum. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but th there is just something so lovely about... Uh, I, I'm desperately, as my poem indicated, trying to clear the house of books, and then I just go and buy <laughs> some more. Mm. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. you've got to have them, haven't you? I mean, they're just... They're just marvellous things to hold and to read and have. I mean, OK, if you go on a plane, I suppose you have to use a Kindle or something ghastly like that. But um, no, you've just got books. Are, books and, are yet, and yet airports, uh, airport bookshops are flourishing as well. Mm. People yeah. want those paperbacks. Mm. Jenny? I, th I mean, I think one of the pleasures is that you don't actually need a password to get in. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're not reliant on any kind of technology, you know, the simple technology of the page and the pages and, and the capacity to just move around at the, f you know, the flip of a finger yes. um, and see yourself in company. Um, I do enjoy uh, having poems on uh, online websites as well in the sense of being able to circulate those links so I think you know there are there's a case for that as well but um, certainly yeah, it's a real pleasure in the page. Yes well as a magazine we're very much committed to the print format but we put a little taster of each magazine online. Um, I think there's another advantage to um, waiting to get your poem into print because um, it has to be put through the ringer uh, to be committed in that way whereas it's very easy too easy We've all been tempted, I think, with our latest poem, thinking it's the best thing sliced bread since sliced bread to get it out there. Um, and uh, it's easy to do that online. And then the L'Esprit d'Escalier kicks in and you think, oh, yeah, but... <laughs> mm. 
Anyway, it's been a delight. I'm going to have to finish. Oh, Anthony has something else to say. Please. It was just about on this theme. I think it allows you to see your poetic self because when you're underconfident about your work, it needs someone to remind you that actually that's what you do. And in terms of the mirroring theme and the Narcissus theme, I'm reminded of Seamus Heaney's poem, Mount Helicon, mm. which is a Narcissus poem. And he Heaney said, well, he thought it was undignified to be looking at oneself in a pond. So he was in that, he took that um, attitude. But mm. But he says... Um, he sees himself in rhyme mm. and let the mm. darkness echo mm. was his, the way he ended it. So he, he need, needed to see his work mm. uh, to see that that's what meant, you know, mm. that's what his raison d'etre was for, for him. Mm. So. Mm. Beautiful. Well, we'll have to stop it there, I'm afraid. Um, I'd love to go on for another hour or so. But it's been an absolute delight to have you, David Harmer, Jenny Hockey, Cora Greenhill, Anthony Costello. A huge thanks, as usual, to Peter Spafford, the director of the wonderful Chapel FM, and to Agnes, um, Techie Supremo, who has done brilliantly. Uh, so bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>